Well, hello, FBI Radio listener Joey Watson here on your airwaves. You are listening to Out of the Box every Thursday from midday to one. I get to sit down with one person and run through the records from their lives and the stories which have defined them. Today, Lexi Freeman. Lexi grew up in the leafy eastern suburbs of Sydney in a secular Jewish family, the granddaughter of Hungarian refugees. Perhaps she didn't know it at the time, but after having a go as a playwright, a short, cre- a short career in acting at the Bell Shakespeare Company and a move to New York, it would be the leafy east of her childhood that would provide the setting for her debut novel, Inappropriation. Published last year, Inappropriation has become a phenomenal success in the US, making New York Magazine's top 10 list for 2018. Soon to be one of Australia's greatest cultural exports, no doubt. Lexi Freeman, a warm welcome to Out of the Box. Thank you. That was a very warm welcome. I'm glad. (laughs) Lexi, since you were last in Australia, you wrote and published a top-selling novel, as I mentioned. A pretty substantial burst into the publishing industry. What's it like returning home after everything that's happened in New York? Um, it's a little bit uh, uneventful, I guess. I mean, it's been a strange thing. Um, the book got a lot more press in the US than it did in Australia, which is something I'm still kind of trying to figure out, um, considering it's a satire on the eastern suburbs and identity politics. Um, it's kind of interesting that it um, hasn't been embraced in quite the same way. That is interesting. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of, um, I can guess at a few things. It's not, it's literary fiction, which, um, you know, is a, is a certain genre that isn't to everyone's taste. Um, so that might be part of it, but um, I'm not sure. I think, I think it has a lot to do with the content, which is, you know, it's, uh, I think, difficult for people to feel comfortable with a book that um, explores this kind of territory without kind of giving a clear message or morality. Um, uh, And I think people are uncomfortable with ambiguity. And so the people who have weighed in and um, endorsed the book and and, um, been excited about it, especially in the US, have been people who kind of know the world, um, you know, have have direct personal experience with identity politics because they identify in in a particular way and they have kind of gotten the larger project of the book. But I think anyone who's not um, comfortable uh, talking about these things or is worried that they might come away sounding like they're on the wrong side um, of opinion has sort of taken a bit of a backseat and not wanted to weigh in too much. So I feel like that's maybe got something to do with the the sort of um, uh, reticence here in Australia. Do you, th- do you think that says something about uh, a, a difference between where Australia is to compared to America? I mean, particularly, and I, and I want to talk about this a bit more later, about uh, identity politics, which is the, the big feature in the book. Do you think it says something about a difference between where the two countries are at? I mean, I wouldn't have thought so because I think... Because of the internet, um, you know, these issues are are definitely very much alive here um, in certain communities. And I think, you know, the um, 
gay marriage vote and a lot of that stuff is has definitely been in the media here. So it's surprising. But I think as with everything in the US, obviously the majority of people in the US um, are not, uh, they don't know much about identity politics, but just because it's such a huge country, such a huge population, you've got um, more people who are kind of interested or um sort of understand, you know, uh, what's going on in that way over there than you do here just because of, just because of the population size. Um, and, and I think also the, you know, um, media over there is very much, um, attuned to that, you know, all the major newspapers and, um, and journals and stuff are, you know, kind of critiquing, uh, you know, film, books, um, TV based on uh, whether the the um, project is kind of morally in keeping with the ethics of the moment, which is, you mm. know, to kind of support diversity and, um, and um, you know, a, a lot of what identity politics is about. Um, so Wesley Morris writes this, has written this wonderful piece in the Times, I think it was a few months ago, where he talks about monocriticism, which is kind of what's happened because works of art are no longer judged based on whether they are good, but whether they are morally good for society. And um, I think, so I think when you have a media that's very attuned to that in the US, then, you know, you're going to get more attention probably um, than here, where I'm not sure that that's fully crossed over yet. I'm sure it's on its way. (laughs) You've been now uh, living in the US for almost a decade in New York. Does Australia still feel like home when you return? Um, it does in some ways. I mean, my family's here and, um, you know, being at the beach and stuff like that is um, feels like home. But, you know, 10 years away and, it, and the 10 years that I've been away at my age, people get married and have kids. And so I do feel a little bit like... Um, an outsider who sort of comes in and um, and like wants to have three drinks instead of one drink at the bar <laughs> with my married friends with children, um, and they all think I have this incredibly exciting life in New York, and um, and I've stopped pretending that that's true. I mean, every now and again something exciting or fun happens, but you know, mm. it's um, so I don't know. I feel con- I feel a little conflicted about being here actually at the moment. Alexi, I want to take this story back uh, quite a few years to Hungary, where your grandmother, now 90 years old, um, was young and and Jewish during the Second World War. Actually, she's not Jewish. She's not Jewish? <laughs> no. Your Hungarian grandmother's not Jewish? No. So can you tell me a little bit about her experience of the occupation then as a non-Jew? Um, well... Uh, she just is from a small town um, outside of Budapest and they were, you know, uh, starving during the war and um, and she tells stories about, you know, having to go out and eat the horse meat of the soldiers, the Russian soldiers whose horses fell in the snow and, you know, hide in barns from the Russian soldiers. I think so it was really around that time that things were most dangerous for her. But... um. I know why you think she's Jewish. <laughs> it's because I wrote a character who is Jewish. Um, 
who is very much like her and, and a Hungarian grandmother, but um, she's actually not. Well, she came to Australia she, some years later in, as a refugee, is that yeah, right? Yeah, during From- the uprising in 56. So they escaped um, uh, through Austria into okay. Italy. And how did they end up in Australia? What was it um, that drew them here? <laughs> they, well, my grandfather, um, they, they wanted to go to the US and um, it was harder to get in there. And I think they, my grandfather saw some brochure or something from some tourists or um, immigration bureau or something, which had a photograph of, um, it must have been a doctored photograph, which would have been hard in 56, but um, a photograph of like a huge snowy mountain leading down into a beautiful turquoise ocean and it just had like Australia printed over the front <laughs> and my grandfather was a an avid skier so he um, was like right we're going to Australia <laughs> and of course once they got here it was extremely disappointing but we went to Threadbow every year <laughs> whether it was just man-made snow or um, yeah so I learned to ski and that's how we ended up here right um what sort of relationship do you have with your grandmother today? What sort of woman is she now at 90? Um, she is actually a very vivacious um, 90-year-old who, um, you know, she's still out there dating online. And um, just recently she said to me, women don't age because we can't get impotent, which I thought was <laughs> very interesting. Um, wow. Yeah. And the other day I was at her house and she was on her way to see a movie and I asked her what movie she was seeing and um, she said Bohemian Rhapsody and I I was like, oh, oh, that's interesting. Why are you seeing that? And she's like, oh, because it will be beautiful, the Hungarian music. And and then we figured out that she meant (laughs) the the list, whatever it is, um, Rhapsody. Yeah, so she thought it was going to be some Hungarian music. Anyway, I explained. No snow in Australia. And And then then Queen. So, yeah, so we got in the car and I played her the song and I sort of instructed her in how to enjoy it, which involved some headbanging, kind of like the scene in Wayne's World. And um, she really loved it. So we actually saw it twice, (laughs) which was way too many times to see that movie. What what should we play in tribute to that? Well, I guess we should probably play Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes. Look up to the skies and see I'm just a poor boy I need no sympathy Because I'm easy come, easy go Little high, little low Any way the wind blows Doesn't really matter
Scaramouche, will you do the fandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, Galileo, Galileo Picaro. Magnifico! I'm just a poor boy, nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor family, sparing his life from this monstrosity. Easy come, easy go, will you let me go? Bismillah! No, we will not let you go! Let him go! Bismillah! We will not let you go! Let him go! Bismillah! We will not let you go! Let me go! We'll not let you go! Let me go! We'll not let you go! Let me go! Oh, mamma mia, mamma mia! Mamma mia, let me go! Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me! That song there was Bohemian Rhapsody, of course, belonging to Queen. The first record chosen by author and out-of-the-box guest Lexi Freeman. Her best-selling debut novel, Inappropriation, was released last year by Alan and Unwin in Australia. Lexi, as you were growing up, do you remember being inspired by the arts and literature? Um, I think I found reading novels a chore, um imposed by my dad. <laughs> he was right. But um, I think the thing that uh, grabbed me first were was um, Shakespeare, which we read a lot of in school. And I think that's where I really fell in love with language and then ended up um, working as an actress for the Bell Shakespeare Company. I, I, I want to I get to that. But first, I, I read somewhere um, that uh, one of your first uh, expeditions into the world of... Um, of poem writing was uh, was love oh, no. love notes that you dedicated oh, yes. to none other than Leonardo Di- DiCaprio is that right Yes, and I guess that kind of relates to um, Shakespeare as well. And maybe that's the maybe that's the honest answer. Maybe I really fell in love with Shakespeare when I saw Romeo and Juliet. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you're not the only one. That's probably actually the truth. <laughs> so yeah, I wrote poems to Leonardo DiCaprio and. Um, just terrible poems about like I don't know how we were destined for one another and um <laughs> he actually had a stalker I think who I, I remember like finding her she was a, a Romanian woman I think she might have been schizophrenic who thought he was talking to her through the television and I got I, I read some of her poems and they were very similar to the ones that I used to write <laughs> and I actually wrote I remember writing poems and I thought I would 
try to get Oprah to help me meet him because I think she had something where she like helped young children with cancer to go to Disneyland or there was something and I was like oh well maybe she can help me meet Leonardo DiCaprio because obviously I'm so deserving of that <laughs> so I tried to send her a letter like pleading my case and um, the problem was I didn't even know how to mail a letter so I think I just like put it through the slit in my own door and it just like fell onto the doormat <laughs> and my mum found it um, dear Oprah yeah. Yeah, dear Oprah, please uh, help me. One of your first forays into writing was plays. What what was attractive about plays as opposed to novels in the beginning? Uh, I think just because it was what I was exposed to as an aspiring actor. And um, uh, I wrote a play. I, I wrote a few short plays and then I wrote one full-length play that um, was kind of semi-autobiographical. I was seeing an older man at the time uh, and I sort of wrote a play that was about our relationship, and um, I mean, not exactly about it, but sort of a, a based a, based on it. And I couldn't figure out how to finish the play. I had like two acts, and I didn't have a third act, and I was trying to figure out what I should do. And then I thought I was very clever, and I came up with you know this third act that would be, um, and I was like nineteen, that would be um, a the the main girl character confronting her father. Um, about him having molested her, which I thought made sense in terms of like why she would be with an older man, which was an incredibly crude way to um, think about it. <laughs> anyway, so I finished the play and um, they put on like a small development reading thing at the stables and I was so excited. I invited my whole family and, um, and we put on this reading and... Um, you know, my dad was there and he was already sort of not thrilled I was dating this older man. Anyway, it was like a Hamlet Claudius kind of moment where I like put on a play, you know, it was like the play within the play to kind of elicit this response. But it wasn't that at all because my dad didn't molest me and it was just something I made up. But of course, afterwards, he was like, what? Like everything else in the play was kind of autobiographical. So it was this horrible moment where he was just like, what are you doing? And I was like, I thought it would be Freudian. I don't know. So that was like uh, the first and last play I wrote <laughs> and my first foray into writing kind of things that were semi-autobiographical and having to deal with the reality of what that does um, to the people who you know and love and um, who don't deserve to be accused of things they didn't do. Which, uh, of course, is something that is carried into the, your um, debut novel, Appropriation, <laughs> which is also semi-autobiographical in many ways. And I want to talk about that in a bit. But um, firstly, I, I want to go back into your childhood. Um, your mother was and, and still is uh, a therapist or a, a certain kind of therapist that might be a bit different from the image that um, the listener might have of what a therapist does. Can you tell me about the classes that she used to run in your house? Um, I kind of can, but I don't know, you know, I've like misremembered things and um, I never paid very much attention because it because I was young and thought sure. everything was embarrassing. But Well, from the perspective of, say, a, an early teenager yeah. coming home to seeing these classes. Yeah. I mean, um, she, you know, she she ran groups that with women and it was a lot of kind of stuff around um, uh, like women understanding themselves, their bodies, their um, uh, 
consciousness <laughs> and um, she and 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 we had we lived in an open plan house so you, so to kind of come in to the house you had to walk down through the living room to get to the kitchen and so these groups were kind of in the in the living room so um, it was impossible to come home from school and not see the women dancing around and um, and uh, you know painting masks and and things and um, and we had a swimming pool and sometimes I would go you know want to get in the pool after school on a hot day and there would be women kind of topless in the swimming pool and they would come over and give me a cuddle <laughs> which is <laughs> very strange and. Um, uh, but fine, you know, now I look back and I totally get it. But uh, And I remember one time just being so hungry and really needing to get down to the kitchen to get a snack and just thinking, okay, I, I, the only way I can get past the living room and down the stairs into the kitchen is if I go in my doona. So I like put this big duvet over myself and I kind of slunk down the stairs but I went so slowly so that no one could see the movement <laughs> so it just looked like this duvet had sort of like gradually moved from one part of the room to the other but of course all the women knew what was happening and they were just watching <laughs> this duvet sort of slide across the room um yeah, so it was kind of a weird thing. And I think my mum tried to include me, but I was, you know, too young and found it just excruciatingly <laughs> embarrassing and didn't want to be involved. What record can we play to complement that spectacle? Uh, well, the thing that always makes me think of that time and those women and um, is, is probably Enya. So let's play Orinoco Flow, please. Oh. 
That was Orinoco Flow by Enya, a track which took us back to the childhood of author Lexi Freeman. Lexi is my guest on Out of the Box today. Lexi, high school is the setting uh, of your debut novel. Uh, your protagonist, Ziggy, goes to the fictional eastern suburbs high school, Lega Girls, perhaps an overture to the non-fictional eastern suburbs high school that you attended. Do you remember high school fondly? Um, some parts of it. I think uh, the way I kind of think of it is that I went to kind of a conservative school, um, which was good in many ways because it gave me something to rebel against and informed who I am. So I'm sort of happy about that. And it was a good school in the sense that I got, you know, a good education and developed a love for English and, um, and you know, art history and things like that. So and I had a I had a couple of really good friends, and and we um, had uh, a kind of unique and strange friendship, and many obsessions, and um, we were sort of outcasts, I guess. What does that mean? What does that mean to be outcasts? Well, I just think I don't know. We um, we were sort of obsessed with um, with being. Uh, we we kind of all wanted to be actors and singers and stuff, and we we were sort of obsessed with um, getting famous and moving to America, and um, <laughs> I think it was actually a way for us not to be too concerned about whether boys liked us. Um, it was like we were putting that off, and we were just focused on getting to America. Um, so we we kind of uh, we had these dares that we would do where. Um, we would make each other just do, you know, crazy, stupid things. And if we didn't do the dares, then the thing was we would not be famous in America. <laughs> so I remember, like, going to Edgecliff Station to catch the bus home and having to go and put my gum in some cute boy's ear um, <laughs> because otherwise I wouldn't be famous in America. Uh, so we just did a lot of stuff like that and we kind of became obsessed with some American celebrities. Well, this is the time that you developed an obsession with the... Uh, the, the American swimmer, Gary Hall Jr. Yeah. Can, can you tell me about that? What's this story? Um, well, we he like won, I think it was the 50-meter sprint or whatever it was in the Atlanta um, Olympics, and we became obsessed with him. He was just like quintessentially American. He had these like huge buck teeth, and he was just like big and blonde and blue-eyed. And a group of us became obsessed with him and we called the Phoenix Aquatic Center where he was training. We read that that's where he trained and they put us through to him. So we just talked to him every wow. lunch and recess for that like That is extreme. That yeah. Is extre and he was receptive to your yeah, calls. Yeah, he thought it was amazing that we were calling from Australia. He just was, he would ask us about, you know, whether there were kangaroos at school and stuff. And we would ask him <laughs> about his girlfriend and her boobs. <laughs> and um, I think he avoided those questions. But we were like 14. I'm not sure if we lied. We may have lied and told him we were older. But um, Did you ever get to meet Gary Hall? Yes, because he came here for a Qantas um, swim meet like a couple of years. No, maybe a year later. And we volunteered as towel girls at um, at the aquatic centre. And so he walked out to take his position at the block and there we were holding his towel and the little basket. <laughs> and he looked like, I remember his face, he kind of went pale. And <laughs> we were like, hi, Gary. <laughs> and I think he then realised how young we were and how crazy it was that we had had this correspondence. So we didn't 
stay in touch after that. But then he came back for the 2000 Olympics. But by then we were like 17 and we were sort of like, mm, this guy's lame. So <laughs> I think we met him like at Darling Harbour or something. And we were like, uh, we're going to a party. Goodbye. So um, that was this, that's the ballad of Gary Hall Jr. and um, me and my friends. Uh, Lexi, you'd moved to Kambala from uh, a Jewish school. W- were you aware of your Judaism when you transferred? Was that something that you felt strongly being in an environment that was kind of decidedly non-Jewish? Um, I mean, camp- that school is like full of Jews. It's, it, I didn't notice uh, that, th- that there was like a huge difference at school. At school, you know, it felt pretty comfortable. Um, I guess I do notice more anti-Semitism in this kind of weird, it's not quite anti-Semitism. It's more like, um, you know, every now and then you're sort of, at a dinner party or in a cab or whatever, and someone will sort of say, oh, that's a bit Jewish, which, you know, could relate to something about money or whatever. And it's mostly people don't realise you're Jewish and they just say something like that. And I'm always just surprised when I come back here and I kind of hear it and I never hear it in the US or, you know, I don't hear it in New York. I'm sure I would hear it elsewhere in the US. But um, no, at school it was not. And the school I went to before that for primary school was, was, um, you know, not, not hugely religious. So I didn't notice so much um, the difference. I mean, we, you know, a priest would come to the school and give us a a sort of sermon once a week or whatever. And we sang these funny songs about Jesus, these kind of, I don't know what they are. They're sort of like, um, I don't know, weird um, folky Jesus songs. And, And I think I did get in trouble a few times for like dancing around and making fun of the songs. Um, but so did everyone. So, Lexi, tell me about Hanson. Oh, <laughs> well, I think Hanson was the culmination, or I guess Gary Hall Jr. was too, but um, of this obsession with America. But these like three young boys, um, you know, uh, I, I think, I don't, I don't think I'm alone in being my age and having had a Hanson obsession, <laughs> but um they came here and there was some like, I don't know, Today FM competition to like meet them. And, you know, my friends and I were like on the phone calling for 48 hours, no sleep, just trying to meet them. <laughs> and then I had this like long standing obsession where I had this fantasy that I would meet them on a chairlift in Aspen. So I was like desperate to get <laughs> to Aspen and and um, get on this chairlift. Um, so it's I don't very know. very specific. <laughs> I know. I know. That's kind of... Um, I think, I don't know if I had a dream or something. Anyway, I'm making myself sound insane. But, um, yeah. Maybe anyway. it's something in the, the detail of the fantasy that informs you are as a writer or something. I think so. That I think does detail seem to be a is theme. important. Yeah, I think, um, I think, I think uh, there is something in the, in the detail of the Aspen chairlift that I like, which, um, yeah, anyway, I never met them. And now I think they're all, they're probably grandfathers by now because they were quite religious and I think they all got married and had kids. And the oldest one, Isaac, he's probably like 45, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so um, anyway. But... Yeah, in tribute to your American obsession and your Hanson <laughs> obsession, what what song should we play off the back of that, Lexi? Um, well, we should obviously play Mbop.
that FBI radio listener was, of course, Hanson and Mbop. A particularly unpretentious selection from author Lexi Freeman. <laughs> I have nothing <sighs> left to lose. It was beautiful. It's a powerful track. Her best-selling debut uh, novel, Inappropriation, was published just last year. Today, she's on Out of the Box. Lexi, before writing, uh, before you got your start in the writing world, uh, it was in arts and culture uh, as an actor that you uh, began to roll. How did you fall into acting in the first place? Um, well, I mean, I'd always wanted to be an actor, so I'd kind of studied it uh, in school and then went to an acting, um, uh, did an acting diploma after school. And um, and then I started working for the Bell Shakespeare Company um, in their school's touring production. Was that a miracle? Were you shocked that that happened <laughs> so easily? Well, I don't know if it was a miracle. I mean, um, no, you know... I guess uh, it's that that program is kind of almost like an apprenticeship. So I mean, right. it's great to get into it and to do it, um, but you sort of once you do that because it's a very um, arduous um, tour. You go all around the country. You're doing shows four schools, sometimes three shows a day. You have to be up at like six in the morning. You take all your sets with you. You, you, you know, set up and, and, um, and pack everything away afterwards and you have to drive, you know, everywhere. So, but once you kind of do that sort of thing, then often the company will employ you in a small role in one of their major productions at the opera house or what, you know, so it's kind of a stepping stone. What was it like performing Shakespeare for school kids? Um, uh, it was a lot of things. <laughs> sometimes, you know, sometimes the kids would heckle. They would, it depended on, um, you know, which school and where and, and how much exposure they'd had to Shakespeare, which, you know, could have been, it, it, it didn't break down into like public or private. It was just, um, kind of random. Uh, and, but there was one experience I remember, which was really, um, Surprising. We went to this school. I think it was like somewhere in sort of rural Victoria, and um, and it was like in a giant gymnasium, uh, which was often the case. And just before we started the show, um, the the teacher who was kind of looking after all these kids came up to us and said, "See that kid in the front row? We've separated him from his friends. He's you know he's bad, and if he gives you any trouble, we'll send him out. And just just don't don't worry, don't worry." And so we were all like, "Jesus, what is this kid going to do?" <laughs> the demon child. <laughs> yeah, we were so scared. Um, and we were like, "Okay, well, we think we can handle it. You know, we've been on the road for a few months now." So we did this show, and it was primarily um, Romeo and Juliet, I think, and and a bit of Hamlet. And um, and we started doing the Romeo and Juliet, and we all had our eyes on this kid in the front row, <laughs> and he was mouthing every word of the Shakespeare, wow. and um, he knew everything, and he just sat there completely wrapped for the whole show, and. Um, and it was amazing. And afterwards, the teacher came over to us and, and he was kind of walking behind her and she was like, go on, tell them, tell them. <laughs> and he was like, oh, I really like the show and yeah, thanks, I really like Shakespeare. And so we were just like, wow, <laughs> you know, it's you can't predict um, what is going to happen in that kind of show. And it just also mm. really showed me that 
the education system lets down these kids who kind of don't fit into a mold. I mean, this this like delinquent boy was a huge, you know, Shakespeare freak. Wow, which was so beautiful. Um, so moments like that made that that tour kind of amazing. Um, yeah. Eventually, you graduate, uh, as you mentioned, to the company shows, some of which were at the Opera House, amongst other places. What what sort of roles were you getting and performing? Um, I think I started, you know, understudying uh, Juliet in Romeo and Juliet, and then my favorite role that I did was Celia in As You Like It, and um, that's kind of a great role. It actually taught me to be a much better actor because you kind of you spend most of your time on stage in that role, listening to Rosalind talk um, uh, about herself, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> And it's just, I think, like, that's one of the great um, skills an actor needs to have is to be able to listen and hear the words being said as if for the first time over and over and over. And um, does, so, it, does it get boring doing the same role every <laughs> night? I mean, because uh, these, these are massive runs all around the country that Belle Shakespeare did. I mean, did you ever feel the need to, sh- to shake things up? <laughs> yes. Yes, we did. Um, we were a little bit naughty sometimes after many months. And we would have nights where we would, you know, uh, there was one night I was just talking to somebody who was in that show about this. We were reminiscing that we had something called Ice Addict Freakout Night where everyone had to have a very small, like, kind of um, meltdown on stage <laughs> just um, so that the audience wouldn't notice but so that the cast would notice so little things like that kind of kept it interesting passing an iced vovo back and forth like on stage <laughs> when you went to like shake some duke's hand or during a dance sequence um, so things like that which you know is terrible but well, the audience the, didn't notice the FBI radio listener partial to a bit of Shakespeare <laughs> to look uh, out for the uh, ice attic freak nobody does out. it anymore <laughs> next yeah, yeah. time they go to a yeah. bell Shakespeare. <laughs> um, now, acting Shakespeare with Bell eventually allowed you to travel around Australia with shows, many of which were in mining towns. Can you paint yeah. a picture of the kind of spots that you were visiting? Um, yeah. Well, uh, we did. We did one show that went to Western Australia and to some of the big mining towns there, and. Um, and so we would do these shows at, and they had like these amazing art centers and they actually got quite a few touring shows um, that like BHP or whatever paid for. And so it was just like a huge um, uh, auditorium full of men, like 700 miners <laughs> watching um, a show. And it was very cute. You know, they loved it. It was, you know... Um, they they didn't get that much culture out there, so it was like fun, and and we would have very strange, you know, drinks with the cast afterwards, <laughs> and then you know there's like brothels out there and these kind of topless bars, and we would sort of sit around ironically <laughs> in these places <laughs> and like love motels with sunken jacuzzis in the middle of the floor in the carpeted bedroom, and that's where we stayed. And it's an amazing image, yeah, you know, a troop yeah. of actors moving from the opera house to you know, the desert yeah. <laughs> to play for for a few hundred miners. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought of like writing something about that. And and actually the book that I wrote, um, I, I, I kind of originally had this idea because I heard that um, 
they originally tried or there was some talk of having Israel be settled in the Kimberleys and I sort of had this like image of having been sort of near that part of the world and like God what what would that have been like um, and um, yeah I've kind of wanted to write maybe some sort of speculative fiction thing about like had Israel been settled in the outback what a what a great disaster that would have been um, wow yeah what what can we play? Uh, I mean, this is a bit of a stretch. You've recommended uh, the Israelites by Desmond Decker. Oh, well, I think that's kind of close. I mean, the Isra- I guess it wouldn't have been called Israel, or no, it still would have been called Israel, which means struggle for God. But um, uh, the Israelites by Desmond Decker is a song that keeps coming up. I think I would. I think I would like to play that. <laughs> Get up in the morning slaving for bread, sir So that every mouth can be fed Reggae Bop was The Israelites by Desmond Decker, brought by out-of-the-box guest Lexi Freeman into the FBI radio studio today. Her top-selling debut novel, Inappropriation, is published by Alan and Unwin. Lexi, why did you decide to give up acting and move to New York? Um, I don't know. I think... (laughs) uh, I still don't know. I think um, I didn't like being beholden to other people's um, 
I don't know. I didn't want to. I didn't want to have to be kind of waiting by the phone my whole life for auditions and um, and to get roles and stuff. So, uh, and I'd always written. So I think I just I I wanted to take back control and and um, and, and write full time. And so I, I applied to a couple of MFAs, Master of Fine Arts in the US, and um, and got into the Columbia program and. So I went and um, uh, that and and I'd always wanted to live in New York. So you know the combination of those things, um, and but New York was different to what I right. You, I mean, you've lived in you've lived in the Big, Ap- Big Apple for almost a, a decade now. Yeah. Um, you had, as we mentioned earlier, expectations of America from when you were a teenager. Has <laughs> it been everything that you thought it would be? Um, no, it's been different. I mean, I think a lot of people go to New York and um, and think it's going to be like the movies. And I did. I thought it was going to be like all my, you know, favorite early Woody Allen films. Um, and it was not. And I think even for the first few years, I still wanted to believe that it was that New York. And I sought out that New York. And I think a lot of people do that. Um, but over the, the last few years I really um you can't help but notice how much the city's changed I mean it's always changing and that's always everyone's complaint but I think it's kind of reached a it's like gone over the tipping point um where it really is Manhattan is really a a kind of playground for rich people who just want to go out to dinner all the time which I don't understand so you've even noticed that in the last 10 years um yeah I mean it's it's like all of the kind of interesting places that were still there when I first moved, they're all basically gone. There's really so little left. There's a great blog called Vanishing New York, which if you want to fall out of love with New York, you should look at it and and the book that was published also. Um, So it's just, um, you know, it's just like a giant Chase Bank lobby and lots of chain stores and, um, and, you know, all the artists and, um, and, and people who, you know, made the city interesting and diverse have kind of been pushed out into Brooklyn and like deep into Brooklyn. And Brooklyn can never really be what Manhattan is. It's just, you know, geographically, it's not the same thing as a dense city um, with that kind of history. So, um, of course, parts of Brooklyn are, are interesting and and um, but it's just it's not the same. Perhaps a narrative that could be applied to many great cities around the world at the yes. moment. Yeah. Uh, Eventually, you finish your Masters of Fine Arts in Writing at Columbia. Yes. Uh, tell me about the process of publishing your first novel. Was it, was it Manifest Destiny? <laughs> um, I mean, I think uh, I worked in publishing for a few years after I finished my MFA um, at a small independent publishing house and um, where I also learned to write better. I think being an editor is a great way to learn to write. And then I was writing this novel... Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, I just, uh, how did it get published? Uh, I got an agent who was kind of my dream agent. Um, I, she publishes somebody else who writes in a similar way to me. And I just was lucky enough to know someone who knew 
who'd sort of met her, who could send uh, my novel to her, and eventually she read it, or her assistant read it, and then she read it, and and she signed me. And then, you know, she's a bit of a heavyweight uh, agent, so when she sends a book out, people read it straight away. So I was lucky, and it just kind of... Um, there was a little auction for the book and it was sold very quickly. So, um, yeah, I guess it was, it was, a, I had a, I had a dream run the first time in, in many ways, uh, with the actual, just getting the book sold. What's it like being a published author? I mean, especially <laughs> when you put a lot of uh, time and work into it, is it sort of one of those things that once you get there, that it's just, that's what you are now? Or <laughs> is there an element uh, of shock to it? Well, the thing is, nothing changes. Um, you're exactly, you feel exactly the way it, you felt before. Um, so if anything, it's kind of depressing because I think it's impossible not to think that your life will transform and that you will transform <laughs> and you will be happy and fulfilled <laughs> and you're not. So, um, uh, yeah, no, if anything, you just realize um, that if you want to be a writer, you should just really love it because um, there's nothing else about it that's, you know, um, particularly great. It's, I don't know, the New York literary scene is sort of not that much fun. Writers are weird. They're kind of antisocial. Um, yeah, it hasn't, it's been, it's been fine. And obviously there's been lots of nice things about it, but in terms of like a, a transformation, um, no, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. <laughs> the, 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 Big issue you attempt to wrestle with in the book is uh, the politics of identity, right? It's identity politics, which is, you know, something that's talked about a lot and probably um, the most talked about thing that's come as a consequence of your book. Can you take me through that in basic terms, what you're trying to explore? Well, I think um, what I was interested in doing was, uh, you know, I started writing the book um, when Obama was still the president and identity politics was kind of, um, uh, you know, having a, a, a big moment and, um, and, you know, satire, uh, which is my kind of genre is, um, you know, about kind of questioning the, um, the, you know, systems of power in a way. So um, I think it's a bit confusing for people because it's not a satire that's like making fun of minorities or people who, um, you know, identify in, in certain ways. It's a satire on the politics and on um, ideology kind of in general, the the ide ideology of identity. Um, and, and because culture is kind of dominated by the left, they are in power. They are in power in that way, you know, and this is a literary satire. Nobody from, you know, the alt-right is reading my book. <laughs> um, so in that sense, you know, it seemed like uh, a fine project. And then Trump was elected and I, I got a little bit more nervous about it because then it's very easy to say, oh, you know, um, now that kind of whole ideology is not so much... Um, the kind of established way of doing things now we you know really have a, a government that is that is kind of um, out to make people's lives uh, difficult and um, and actually threaten their safety but still in terms of culture and the way we talk about these things um, the left is still pretty much in control of that so you know I may I made adjustments to the project but um, 
but it still seems a viable thing to me. If we can find the detail in the transition from Obama to Trump, maybe we can go to election night 2016, <laughs> which was particularly memorable probably for everyone in the US and the world. Yeah. Uh, what, what were you doing that night? Um, well, I think uh, that night I went to a friend's house downtown and um, and by, I think we got there at like nine and, and by that stage things were starting to look bad and and it was funny, my friends, um, all the men were kind of like either paralysed, like in bean bags, just like so um, anxious and disturbed or doing downward dog and the women were sort of, I don't know, there was some weird gender breakdown where the men kind of, um, I don't know, collapsed, and <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Anyway, and then, you know, Trump was obviously winning, and we walked back to, I was staying in an apartment in Midtown, and it was opposite the Empire State Building, and so the, um, and, and the colours of the building would always kind of um, bleed into the room every night the Empire State Building is lit up in a different colour. And on the night of the election, they had Hillary's face and Trump's face projected onto the building. So every time Hillary won a state, it would go blue. And every time Trump won a state, it would go red. And by three in the morning when we were walking home and we got home, it was all red. And we walked in and um, the there were like blonde floorboards and the window, the blinds were up and the whole room was just red with Trump's face. <laughs> and it was just like a really disturbing moment. And um, I think that was like just, yeah, when it kind of hit that things were really going to be different. Um, an, an ominous end it was to very Out ominous. of the Box today. <laughs> yeah. Lexi, yeah. Um, what are you going to play us out with? Well, I think I want to play this song. I'm not sure how you say it, IT or IT by Christine and the Queens. It was something I was thinking about a lot around the election. You know, the lyrics, uh, she wants to be a man, uh, made me think a lot of Hillary and how she is kind of this patriarchal figure who really tried and and, um, and doing it that way didn't work. And I think that's something that interests me. So this is IT by Christine the Queens. Lexi Freeman, thank you very much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. Thank you. Dogs who are fully 